This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, welcome to Clifford Podcast of the Irish Examiner. Now, last weekend, the Citizens' Assembly took a number of votes on drug use and drug laws, which will form part of a report to be prepared for the Oireachtas. For instance, the gathering overwhelmingly voted for a health-led approach to drug possession, they voted to discontinue a system in which people can be arrested and charged with offences for possession of drugs for their own use and they voted narrowly not to legalise cannabis. But what does it all mean? Did the Assembly do the job that was asked of them? And will its outcomes lead to a very different approach to drugs at a time when, remember, illegal drugs are certainly the way things are fashioned at the moment, illegal drugs are the source of the most serious crime in this country. Joining me to discuss these issues is Keno Krohor, Assistant Professor in Criminal Justice at Minute University. Keen, you're very welcome. Thanks very much, Mick. Keen, you made a very detailed submission to the Assembly and I've noticed that you, you've actually been keeping a very close eye on it and very interesting um, few articles you've written and, and, and tweets and what have you. And uh, I, I was reading your submission and I see that your interest in this whole area began with your personal experience over 10 years ago. Yeah, that's right, Mick. So before I became an academic, before I even did an undergraduate degree, to be honest, I was working as a stonemason in the west of Ireland, where I'm from. And uh, on the morning of March 16, 2009, the Gardaí uh, arrived in my home in uh, the middle of the burn on the foot of a tip-off, and they found a very significant amount of cannabis plants that I was cultivating indoors. Uh, so I was prosecuted for... Uh, sale and supply of uh, cannabis uh, with a value exceeding 13,000 euros. And in the, uh, in the days after my arrest, I lost my job as a stonemason and uh, trying to figure out what to do. I, uh, I ended up going, I said, uh, the best thing to do other than fleeing the country, which the guardy who arrested me said was an option. Uh, of course, I wouldn't have been able to come back to the country. Um, but I thought one, I could, the economy was falling apart at that time. I thought one good strategy to avoid a very long prison sentence was to at least show that I was changing my life. Uh, at university seemed like a good option. So I managed to get a late application into Trinity and I got into the law program there. Now, when I was an undergrad, I was gravitating towards criminal justice, obviously, because of my experiences and a general interest. I'd always been interested in it. But uh, I was advised by people there, you know, once it was clear that I wanted to become an academic, they said to kind of stay away from it. And that had been the original plan. But as I went and I did an advanced degree and I did a master's degree in law in Oxford, while I was there, I kind of got drawn into policing as an area uh, of research. And I found my supervisor and that kind of started my, you know, because of my own experiences, my own understanding of it, gave me a different perspective than a lot of academics, you know, who are, very like there are very few academics there are a few but there are very few academics 
in the world really who study these things, criminal justice, policing, who actually have been subject to it. You know, I spent a bit of time in prison, in, uh, in Castlereagh Prison uh, on remand during my degree. And um, kind of, so I, I ended up interested in criminal justice because of that experience. I don't think I probably, I, I, I may not have ended up focusing on it as a research area. Drug policing hasn't been a focus. Well, I should say it's, it's hard. If you are a policing researcher, it's very hard to avoid having, ending up with a fairly decent understanding of drugs policing. It's, it's deeply interwoven into policing in most parts of the world. So even if you're not a specialist in drugs policing, and I wouldn't describe myself as a specialist, I have ended up with a lot of detailed understanding and information about it. Um, so that's why when the Citizens' Assembly was being set up, myself and some of my colleagues like Ian Marder here in Maynooth, we know a lot about policing and we know a lot about drugs policing. We were really trying to encourage the Assembly to pay attention to that because it was an important, it was within the terms of reference, but also I don't think you can, you can understand where things have gone wrong without understanding policing. Just before we go too far, just to drag you back a small bit, just in terms of your position, because you said that you, 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 when they got, and you were working, so this is obviously just something that you were doing on the side, like an awful lot of people would be doing it. But you said that it was over the limit, that 13,000 euro. And I've looked at this over the last 12 years or or more, Keen, and it's something I've written a lot about and something I had a major issue with. And that was the legislation, I think 15A, is the section of one of the criminal justice systems, whereby a judge, and I think they've moderated it, but at the time, whereby a judge is obliged, unless there are exceptional circumstances, to imprison someone for 10 years, which personally I thought was crazy stuff imported from the USA. Out of curiosity, what was the outcome of your joust with the criminal justice system? So I got a five-year prison sentence suspended uh, in its entirety. Very unusual. Um, You know, that doesn't happen very often. Um, a big part of the reason was because one of my character references was an academic in Trinity and he gave a very, you know, it was accurate, but, uh, you know, he was quite brave. I don't know if other people would have done it, um, but I went to him for help and he was able to give me a very strong character reference. I think that's what swung it to avoid. I was expecting probably two to three years of a custodial sentence and maybe get out in a year. I was kind of hoping then I'd be able to continue, suspend my studies for a year and maybe get out and try and uh, get back into it. But I think the judge, Raymond Grourke, Circuit Court in Galway, he was, I think he was very, he was impressed. You know, I, I was, I'm one of the exceptional, I'm not, I'm, I'm definitely not the exception that kind of demonstrates that the system works. Uh, I was in a very lucky position. I could apply for university and you know, I got in a good leaving cert uh, when I left school. Uh, so I was able to go in on the strength of that. You know, the vast majority of people who come into contact with the criminal justice system are not as privileged as me. Uh, I had a good strategy long before I was caught about what would work because I knew people who had been through the system. I talked to them. And so I had, you know, a decent idea of what would help mitigate. I didn't think I'd avoid prison, but I thought, you know, if I get caught, that would mitigate it. It worked out much better than I would expect. And unfortunately, I think it does show just how impactful your class, your socioeconomic class, you know, the kinds of signals. You know, I'm not from, I'm from, I'm from a peasant family in the west of Ireland, you know, I mean, either of my parents have university degrees, but, uh, you know, they were, they had a lot of cultural capital and they were, you know, pretty sophisticated people. And I inherited that. I was exposed to a lot of things growing up that gave me an appreciation for the kinds of things you can do, the kinds of strategies you can use to avoid the most punitive sides of the state. Just people 
the average person who ends up in contact with the criminal justice system, they aren't that lucky. Yeah, and that's a very good point. And it's something must, at some stage in which yourself some must return to uh, th- that whole area of, of the role that class plays when people come into contact with the criminal justice system. It is very interesting. Also, in fairness to you, the, the, the point you make about having experience of the area that you, you ultimately studied in, and not alone that, not alone that, but having worked as a stonemason, there aren't too many academics who would have done that prior to um, getting into lecturing and what have you. Anyway, Keen, that's your own personal background, so obviously you had a heightened interest in this whole area. What's yeah. your overall impression of so far the outcome and what do you see as the the pluses and the minuses? Yeah, I think it's important to start from the pluses uh, because it was a really resounding statement from the Assembly that they want to end the status quo, which is stigmatisation and a criminal justice-led response. Uh, so that's really impressive. If you look at each of the individual votes, I mean, would it be helpful maybe if I just explain how things ended up falling on the day? Please, yeah. So they decided, the Assembly decided to split up drugs into certain categories, which I think makes sense. You know, I think there are good reasons, you know, there are re- maybe reasons against, but they decided to have individual votes on how they, they would recommend the state approach individual drugs. So they separated out cannabis, um, psychedelics like psilocybin, DMT uh, and ayahuasca. And then another category for cocaine because of its um, particular, you know, the usage rates have really uh, gone through the roof in the last 20 years, doubling in uh, cocaine usage. And then it was everything else, all other drugs. Now, personally, I, I would have liked to have seen, and this is maybe when we come back to things where I think they, they didn't do as good a job as I would have liked. I think drugs like MDMA, for example, which is ecstasy, you know, a number of jurisdictions are looking at legalizing that for therapeutic purposes so that, you know, psychiatrists will be able to use MDMA as part of therapeutic. Like there's we're in the experimental stage, but a lot of countries are moving on. But that being in a very controlled conditions, I presume. Yeah, yeah. Very controlled. Yeah. So legal the way morphine is legal. Right. So morphine. And this is the problem with some of the rhetoric in this debate is legal does not mean commercial commercially available or recreationally or available you know you're an adult and you go to a a shop or a pharmacy you can buy it over the counter legal just means the substance itself is not prohibited under the criminal law it might be regulated in different ways and unfortunately they didn't have a discussion about that and and heroin as well you know there are really important um projects that are happening in countries like switzerland where heroin is being used as an alternative to methadone maintenance for for opiate addicts so where someone is resistant to, where methadone doesn't work for them, basically, uh, in the, some jurisdictions, doctors are able to prescribe heroin. And, you know, there's good successes. Again, this is about reducing harm. Uh, and there are some really, there's good, good evidence about that. They didn't get to that. So they ended up lumping all these drugs together and they voted separately on them. But even if you take each of the votes, it was resounding. You know, the overwhelming majority of people there rejected the status quo, rejected stigmatization. And what they fell into kind of different camps and the main camps were with some drugs, there was a very significant proportion, about half wanted legalization in some form. Um, cannabis, that was for cannabis and the psychedelics. So cannabis and uh, and the, the group that included psilocybin, magic mushrooms, they nearly had a majority in both those cases uh, for legalization. And then the other camp was a decriminalization with health approach. So the overwhelming majority in each category said no more criminalization, uh, but they were kind of divided. You know, with the high harm drugs, very few people were recommending 
legalization of cocaine. And just to say, I mean, it, it's, it's scary for people. I understand why they're scared about some of these conversations because cocaine is a dangerous drug. You know, it's, there's, there's all studies show that it is a high harm drug. Um, but there are some countries that are looking at maybe legalizing it again for the reasons I said about uh, heroin. It can be a useful thing for the state to have in its armory of, uh, of health responses that it could allow practitioners who are experts in dealing with um, detox, you know, drug detox and things like that, that they would be able to access these substances to help people reduce personal harm. OK, so those are the various categorizations and roughly how people came down. Now, one thing I think there's a perennial debate about and I think there's a lot to be said for it and we've seen in places, I'm not sure the extent to which but the likes of Portugal and Oregon the USA, but let's just deal initially with um, legalising cannabis and doing so. In a commercial sense, I think would be fair to say in, in that respect. I think that was, there was just one or two votes, one vote was against it. Now, notwithstanding that, that doesn't necessarily hold anything uh, solidly in terms of how the Oireachtas might approach it. But do, do you think, for instance, Keen, that's something that should be looked at? And and what is the evidence that it would be a positive thing to do? Yeah, so I mean, again, people are, we're, we're, one, the main thing to say is we're at the very early stages of having examples where we have a fully commercial regulated cannabis market. So the most, just say, the most mature de facto, because the Netherlands is, is, it's a complicated story about why they ended up with the system that they have. It's de facto legal, as in you can go into a coffee shop in the Netherlands and buy cannabis, and that is tolerated. It's a tolerated approach, but it's not legal, right? They do not have a legalized model. There's reasons why they ended up with that model 50 years ago, but that's the model that they do. But what we can say is, that's the most mature model in Europe. And why, in terms of good outcomes, what we have to look at is, is the state is not causing harm by trying to enforce criminal laws. So while usage in the Netherlands is probably about the same or even less in the case of France, it's the same or less. So cannabis usage is about the same or less as other countries in Europe. What they have not been doing is punishing people for cannabis possession and use. Uh, so that's a good thing because that is a, a big part of the problem with the war on drugs strategy that, you know, we've all been um, following or most jurisdictions have been following is people don't realize that when you criminalize, it can cause harm. It can cause very serious harms for the individuals and deploying the police to enforce those laws, whether they want to or not, that can have quite negative consequences. So what we can see in the Netherlands is we have the same or less usage than countries that have been aggressively pursuing criminalization um, and they haven't ha- suffered the negative consequences of trying to enforce those laws. Yeah, oh, so that's absolutely, I can see is. that. Yeah. I've been in Amsterdam and that, as, as you say, the way it's sold. But are those premises licensed? And is it a question that it's not legal, but it's tolerated? Or, or what exactly is... So it's a very, like, it's it's the kind of approach that maybe wouldn't... Might be useful to say why they didn't legalise, firstly, right? And this is really important. America designed the war on drugs. You know, the policies that we all adopted were rooted, well, they came from the UN Single Convention on Narcotics 1961. That was promoted and pushed on people by the United States of America. In the early 1970s, when the Dutch were thinking about legalizing, they were worried that if they actually legalized, 
that the US might impose ah, financial right. sanctions on them because that's a big power. That's the big stick. So they, they developed this model and you know, they're now I think they're, they're regretting, they're, they are making moves to legalize properly and properly regulate because there are problems with their, their model is not a great outcome model in terms of if you want to, if you want proper state control because production is still illegal and, um, and therefore like quality control and things like that are very, very hard for the state to do. So it's not a great outcome. Um, but the, the, the way it works, as I understand it, is there's kind of a municipal mar- uh, licensing system. So the government's policy is this is illegal, but their view is every, everyone knows we just don't enforce it. OK, the rules are not enforced. And then individual municipalities, because they have, as you know yourself, mm, Nick, they have yeah. proper local democracy in the Netherlands. Like, 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 so like local government can make a lot of very, like decisions about whether or not they'll allow. So they can shut down, they have been shutting down some coffee shops and, ma- and regulating where they're allowed open. So it's a weird mix of regulated tolerance, shall we say. Yeah, it, what it sounds exactly like is that whole phrase, an Irish solution for an Irish problem. That's what, that's what it sounds. And it's interesting also, yeah, you, yeah. You, you, you mentioned the US-led thing and that thing I mentioned to you about because I followed it closely, uh, sentences for drugs yeah. that um, mandatory minimum sentence all yeah. of that paraphernalia was all imported from the US not only that because I remember doing stories and there was pressure put on the likes of Ireland to implement that kind of thing so as you say the whole thing is US led one point I just want to say so I went into the assembly and I spoke to them assembly members you know um, just to see to get a feel for you know any questions they might have and um, it was really interesting because they had no idea where our rules came from. Uh, and the assumption was, you know, they were asking sensible questions like, why is cannabis treated the same as heroin? Why are all these drugs treated as problematic? And that's because the US for over a century had developed a very particular attitude to drug, which was for domestic reasons. Now, they decided to export it to the world. But those reasons were primarily motivated by anti well, anti-Mexican racism and anti-Chinese racism and about suppressing political, um, you know, black, you know, black culture, you know, black music and things like that. And they, they admitted that later, much later in the 1970s and 80s. Some of Nixon's key people later admitted that that was a key motivator behind the war on drugs. It was not about harm. There was no evidence uh, brought to bear on how which substances we decided to criminalize and which ones we didn't. Morphine and heroin are similarly dangerous, but the states made the decision to criminalize heroin uh, and, and, and along with all the other drugs. So it's really important that people realize we have not always had this system. It was imposed on us basically through fear of financial sanction. And it came in quite recently, you know, it was 1977 as the Misuse of Drugs Act. Before that, we didn't criminalize. Yeah, and a few years before that, as you said, came the, the, the war in drugs was initiated in the USA. And one of the iconic photographs from that period in the early 70s was the Bowl Elvis Presley arriving in the, the, the West Wing of the, of the White House to meet President Nixon to be appointed as a kind of a special ambassador to tackle as this war on drugs. Yeah. And <laughs> even, the, even from the photograph, you can see the man is out of his tree, unfortunately, the poor fellow. He, he, he was deep into addiction. As well. But I mean, yeah. that to me sums up the war on drugs, to be quite honest with you. And just on that, it's a good example because his issue was with, they were prescription drugs. Um, and that was tolerated, you know. I mean, America's only realising that, you know, there's unfortunate, it's a tragedy what they're dealing with, with the opioid epidemic. But they did have double standards. You know, addiction to 
legal but controlled substances like that was tolerated and never discussed because it, the moralized language of the war on drugs was Absolutely. not applied similarly uh, to that as it was to the drugs that was were prohibited. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The other argument that is commonly put forward, and it may have some substance, I don't know, but it's this idea that, okay, we have the most popular uh, mind-altering drug in this country is alcohol. It has been legalised. We're all aware of the massive social problems there is from it. There is not a question of of it ever being um, criminalised or, or delegalised, whatever you want to call it. That's just off the cards. But people will suggest, OK, that's the way things are. But if we are to add other substances, cannabis, um, Cocaine, for instance, and I know there's it, it, different categories, you say, but let's just use cannabis as, as a one example. If we are to add them, inevitably, we're just going to have far greater health problems. And will the if there is such health problems, will the extent of those problems outweigh any benefits in taking it out of the criminal justice system? Yeah, so I'd have two responses to that. Like the first one I'd go to is the example of the Netherlands. What we can see is when you have de facto legalization, you don't get increases in use. And like the worry is like, first thing to say, the vast majority of use is not problematic use. Okay, it's a taboo to discuss this. But for the vast majority of people who use drugs that are prohibited under the 1977 Act, it's a nice experience for them. I'm not allowed to say that because of the moralized language of the war on drugs, but it's true. Um, and the other response I would say is, right, if you are, if you have genuine concerns and like, so some of the emerging, it's very hard and you can cherry pick data coming out of the US on both sides and Canada, but it's these markets are just too immature and they're too early in the regulatory life to say with any certainty what might happen. But the evidence coming from those countries on balance of so the, in, in Germany, they're about to bring in a form of enhanced decriminalization or restricted legalization of cannabis and they did a big, you know, federal, their health ministry, the federal health ministry did a review of all the evidence and they found on balance like problematic use did not go up uh, after legalization. I mean, full legalization. So the evidence we have thus far suggests that problematic use doesn't go up. Use may go up in those, has, has maybe gone up in those markets. That's probably understandable because, you know, if something is permitted uh, for the first time, you're going to have a small proportion of the population who maybe would have maybe been curious about it and then will try it for the first time. But what I would be would be confident in saying is that if you look at the Netherlands experience is that that stabilizes after a while and you'll end up with comparable rates. Like people, the important thing to say is people are not, you know, not using drugs because they're illegal. They have lots of reasons for why they don't want to use drugs. The vast majority, you know, it's not availability either because if you wanted to get access to drugs for especially for children it's easier probably for a lot of children to get access to illegal drugs than it is to alcohol now because we've improved regulations around alcohol and the culture has shifted as well I'll concede that but what counts more 
uh, for people's decisions to, on drug use is way more about culture. So if you look at the Netherlands and France, the Netherlands, it's de facto legal. France, they've pursued a really aggressive, punitive criminal justice response on cannabis use. Usage, usage rates of cannabis in France are twice what they are in the Netherlands. So what that tells us is, is that the law and policing systems are having no impact on people's decisions or very little impact on people's decisions whether or not to use. So you shouldn't be afraid that you're going to have this gigantic jump. The evidence is not saying that we know from the Netherlands and the North American states and from Uruguay, the first country to formally legalise, is that you do not get big jumps in problematic use. Okay, and am I right in saying, Keen, that apart from cannabis, the other categories you mentioned, the other two categories they have, and, and arguably they should have had more, but that the, the general thrust of recommendations there are that people who are caught in possession uh, of any of these drugs for personal use, that they're not subjected to the criminal justice system, and separate to that, that the, a case can be made for some or many of those substances to be legalised to an extent that it would be on the basis of uh, health and that it would be in a very controlled environment where you could only get it through, for example, uh, being prescribed by a, by a doctor. Am I, am I correct in general terms that that's where it's at? So, I mean, so one of the concerns, I, complaints I might have about the Citizens' Assembly is what they got to vote on um, and how the ballots were described. So they didn't really get to vote on what I would have liked a more of it. They didn't really discuss it, which I was talking about, which is the idea that you would legalize for therapeutic use in highly controlled circumstances, drugs like MDMA and psilocybin. Um, they didn't have that debate, so they didn't vote on it. Uh, so we couldn't really. I mean, I think there are very strong arguments for it. But the main message from that, what they voted for is is just destigmatization. It's just removing the criminal justice system. Didn't really go beyond that. Now, I think there's very good arguments to say for things like cannabis and psilocybin, that the vote was split. So you could probably go for some form of highly controlled legalization. Mm. in those. So if you were taking the voting patterns as being very indicative of public support or what we should be doing, then maybe you could go. But for other drugs, no. They didn't recommend legalizing uh, things like heroin for therapeutic purposes. To be honest, it just wasn't really on the agenda to the extent that maybe it should have been. You know, they had a very busy, yeah. they had a lot of work to do. Um, I think they could have, I, you know, I would have preferred them to take some things a bit more seriously than they did, but they didn't. Uh, but even despite that, they, what we have is a really progressive set of recommendations. Um, and uh, basically, we, we kind of, I'd be very happy with that as a starting point to have future conversations more like because once you remove the stigma and you remove criminalization, I think it frees up space for policymakers to have more sensible conversations about how we how we manage uh, these drug problems to reduce harm. I think they'd be I'm, 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 I'm optimistic that if they did decriminalize that you'd be able to have they wouldn't be as fearful about having those conversations. I was looking there uh, at Oregon like, those two or three years they have uh, that type of system in place and one of the complaints and mm. it's difficult to I suppose get a rounded handle on it but I saw some coverage definitely that there are people particularly in downtown Portland which I think is the main city in Oregon that they're seeing as they believe an awful yeah. lot more visibility of people with addiction problems of dealers hanging around and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Is there a fear that you could be heading yeah. down that route? Yeah, and it's really like the Oregon experience is really good. Well, first thing to say about that, you know, some people have tried to say 
that it's failed because you're getting all this, you know, street consumption. Uh, and that's why decriminalization doesn't work. Like, you know, in one sense, and I, uh, but I, I wouldn't want to recommend this, but like we already regulate, you can, you can control people using substances on the street. We do not permit public alcohol consumption in Ireland. You know, bylaws prohibit it. The police can enforce those bylaws. So if you wanted, you can, you can still police how people consume without criminalizing the fact that they are consuming or they have it in their possession. One thing about that, and this is just because it would jump out at me and I'd imagine it would jump out a lot of people. In theory, you're absolutely right. In practice, there are areas of Dublin, right down, not too far from O'Connell Street where you walk along and this is being openly done in a scenario whereby it's not allowed. So, uh, do you know what I mean? People will, will, will find it difficult yeah. to think that it'll be properly policed if it is allowed, if that's the scenario that currently exists. Yeah, well, I think I think it's a really important point to make is that I, I personally would not like to see aggressive, regardless of whether it's a decriminalization model where you restrict public usage. I wouldn't like to see aggressive policing of those populations because those people, like yeah. in Oregon, are homeless people. They do not have anywhere to go and consume their drugs. We do not have supervised injection facilities. We do not have supervised... Uh, facilities for people to consume things like crack cocaine like they have in other jurisdictions. So penalizing those people would really not get us anywhere beyond the kind of stigmatization we're trying to abandon. But it's, it is, it's really important is that we cannot untangle the most problematic forms of use from homelessness and deep extreme deprivation. It is really difficult. Now, one thing I would say is that like you can still like decriminalization is still a positive step forward. Policymakers, I think the ones who promoted it and a lot of community activists in Oregon and particularly in Portland, I still think they think, look, this is better and we're going to work on street consumption because understandably people don't like seeing that. You know, they, it makes them, you know, f- you know, people feel insecure when they're people. And it's it's horrible to, uh, for that we are that we live in societies like that, where people are forced to consume things on the street like that. But that does not mean at all that criminal justice can help you, us get out of that. It can't. Usually criminal justice interventions for those problems will just compound the problems and make things worse. That's the experience in every jurisdiction. Currently, we have a tolerance approach by Gardaí. Um, on street consumption uh, for understandable reasons. Well, where, what would you do with these people? You're going to prosecute them, probably going to not get sent to prison, so they'll be out again. Even if they did get sent to prison, they're not going to get any help there. So I think tactically it makes sense. The police cannot fix this problem. Uh, we need more meaningful interventions in terms of housing and health. Yeah, definitely. Um, it makes sense. I can also see, though, particularly, and we are a conservative country in some ways, not in other ways, but in some ways we are, I can see why people would be reluctant if they thought the possibility of the, there'd be far more open dealing, that there'd be issues around far more visibility of the whole thing. I, I can see why that would, a certain section would put that up as an argument. Well, I mean, look, a decriminalization model does not have to tolerate open dealing on the streets. You know, if the police yeah, wanted the, to enforce want, that, yeah. they could. Decriminalization is for personal use. You can, like, you would still maintain criminal penalties mm. on dealing and street dealing. So you could police that if you wanted to. Absolutely. So there's no restriction on that. That wouldn't tie the hands. You know, there's a lot of misinformation going around that this would tie the hands of Gardaí. It absolutely would not. You know, the people Gardaí are coming into contact with on the streets Mm. They're either dealing or they're in personal possession. And they're like, you know, under a decriminalized model, we wouldn't want them hassling people who are just 
you know, who are who are experiencing serious addiction and just have drugs on their uh, uh, in their place. The police are not helping those people. But on a, under a decriminalised model, they could absolutely prosecute the yeah. people who are dealing with oh, no, the they can, all right. There's no doubt about that. No, another thing that strikes me in, in a very different vein, though, um, I don't know this from first-hand experience, Keen, because I'm an old fella now, but as I understand it, particularly in the nightlife, coke is absolutely rampant, and not just in cities, but through every town in the country. And it just strikes me, particularly the yeah. type of drug it is and what have you, in the event of decriminalising, on one level, certainly people would would um, they may, they'd be more open within clubs or whatever of having it in themselves. Or, but would there also be a case that the, the obvious and serious dangers of that as a recreational drug, a far greater health case could be made and a far greater health information campaign could be made just where you can openly point out to people, listen, do you realise what you're messing with here? Yeah, um, so like just to preface this by saying it's like health information, it's not yeah, my area of yeah. expertise. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, no, I, I just say in a general just, sociological like, sense, expert, I'm wondering, but, yeah. But as, so yeah, I mean, I was actually surprised because I hadn't been paying too much attention to usage stats in the last couple of years. But when, I, when the Citizens Assembly was getting started, I went back and read through and kind of updated my knowledge. And I was surprised at how much it had increased, um, like very, very significant increases in use. And just two quick, th- quick things I would say is like one that demonstrates just how policing and criminal justice has not stopped that, you know, uh, people are increasingly consuming cocaine because the culture has shifted on it. That's why there's yeah. not because there's been a drop off in policing of cocaine. Um, it's because people's the culture has shifted. Now, how do you target that from a, a health information point? Like in my observer knowledge of this is that it's really tricky um, because a lot of those information campaigns do not hit home, particularly the abstinence yeah. only ones, you know, the like Nancy Reagan, just say no, that kind of thing doesn't really impact because people, you know, they the ones who are going to take it are not going to be impacted by those. So I'm not sure. Um, and I, I, I watched some of the presentations in the Citizens Assembly. You know, there were some very sophisticated presentations on, you know, what kind of messaging campaigns help. Uh, but there was still, unfortunately, there was still a bit of abstinence only floating around. Um, and so I'm not I'm not entirely sure. There's definitely a case for much because of the harms and prevalence of its use. More, it absolutely makes sense that you would target your resources to try and reduce that. Like other substances that are being misused do not carry the same risks of harm. Things like cannabis uh, and things like psilocybin, you know, MDMA even, you know, MDMA is not a high harm drug. It's a moderate to low harm drug it's not at risk of abuse very unlikely to suffer an overdose you know it's it's a a one of the more safer drugs it doesn't make sense that you would target those drugs for your health interventions uh the same as you would target cocaine okay where to know keen for this uh, they're gonna they're gonna compile as i understand they're gonna compile a report that'll be forwarded to the oireachtas will it then go before an oireachtas committee to debate with a view to possible legislation yeah yeah so the impression I get now is that the most likely home, and it makes sense to me, would be the Oireachtas Justice Committee, um, because the Oireachtas Health Committee is kind of busy. Uh, the Oireachtas Justice Committee is very familiar with this uh, issue. They've already uh, published a really, really good report back in 2019. Uh, so I think it'll probably, I'm hopeful that it'll end up back, end up back in there. And yeah, so it'll be the job of them, the, that committee, to interpret what the recommendations were and make some and make basically recommendations to government about how what laws should be passed and what laws should be changed and also the kinds of investments that we might need to make. I'm, I, I have to say I'm not as optimistic 
Two thirds of the recommendations were focused on health interventions and prevention would not be as optimistic that those would be actioned uh, because they're expensive, right? Those kinds of things will require a lot more resources. The main headline recommendations of decriminalization are much easier to achieve. So I suspect they'll probably, if if anything is actioned, those will be actioned. And I get the impression you're talking about a long, slow, gradual process. Well, I hope not. Yeah, yeah I really, really hope not. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I, I, think, I think what we need, look, you know this as well as I do, Mick, we need political bravery on this. Um, like, I, I'll be honest with you, when it comes to Citizens' Assembly, I'm a little bit cynical, obviously, with the Eighth Amendment. I think it worked really well. I was hugely impressed by it when I went in to see the Drugs Assembly. You know, people are really engaged and it can add a lot of legitimacy. And if they run well, you know, they can do, they can be generationally significant moments. But ultimately, they're there designed to give political cover to politicians to make decisions they're afraid to make. And uh, I just, I really hope that there is the political will there to action this. Uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure what, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know what way the, the wind is blowing in that regard. There seems to be cross-party support for significant change, maybe not from Sinn Féin. They've been uh, disgracefully silent on this issue. They don't seem to want to touch it, which is a real pity. Uh, but all the other parties, are, there's a lot of consensus growing from all the other parties that uh, they need to do something about this. Great stuff. Uh, Keena Crahour, Assistant Professor in Criminal Justice Manu, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mick. Before you go, have you ever listened to The War on Drugs? I have indeed. Great band. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and a great name for a band. It's, it's up there with the likes of, in terms of a name for a band, it's up there with the likes of The Beautiful South, which I think is yeah. a fantastic name, taking the pure Mickey yeah, out of the south of England. Yeah. No, I love The War on Drugs. A friend of mine says it's been described as what, well, beer commercial rock music but I, I think that's unfair I really really love <laughs> it's, a bit of, yeah. be, it's a bit trippy too in places but that's exactly, neither here yeah. nor there Keen, thanks very much for talking right, to us today thanks very much Mick as always I would like to thank our engineer JJ Vernon thank you folks for listening we'll be back soon keep well On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.